Welcome back to the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3. And this week we are talking about gun violence. And I think it's time that we start to frame gun violence as what it is. It's a social determinant of health that has significant impact on one's mortality. And that isn't just for individuals who happen to die as a result of gunshot wounds, but those who even survive understanding the psychological trauma that that has on individuals and communities, I think it's time to call it what it is. And that is a public health crisis. And so this week we are hearing from Dr. Unique C. Starks, from Jarrell Daniels and from Shakira Bolden and from Kira Bolden, who are currently engaged in the city of New York in advocacy efforts for gun reform. And when we talk about changing the way that cities and states use their guns, I think it's important that we understand that it's going to look different from locale to locale and the stigma associated with gun violence. We typically frame it in a way that is street violence. And and we're talking about street violence and gang violence today, but understand that gun violence includes death by suicide. It includes homicide. It includes street violence. It also includes mass shootings. So when you think about gun violence, understand that it it captures all of these things and the approach to gun reform is going to vary depending on which outcome you're really looking at. But that's enough of an intro for me. I'm excited to introduce you all to our community of practice panel this week. We're going to start things off with Jarrell Daniels. Jarrell? First, uh, thank you for having us. Um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. It really means a lot to be a part of such meaningful dialogue. I come to this as a Bronx-born native, um, a junior at the School of General Studies at Columbia University. I've also founded and now managed the Justice Ambassadors Youth Council. Um, We've been up and running since 2019, just one year after my release from prison after serving a six-year sentence, beginning at the age of 18. I've been labeled an activist and youth mentor and educator, but the reality is that I was forced to grow up in adult prison as a teenager. And I'm just hoping that I can do all that I can in my advocacy efforts to work to change that narrative. But thank you, James. Thank you for that, Jarrell. And again, thank you, James, for having us. I look forward to the conversation as well. My name is Unique C. Starks, and I'm from Rosedale, Queens, New York. That's like a small, small, small town in New York. I'm a social worker by trade and a change agent by heart. I possess a BA in psychology from Brooklyn College, a master's of social work from New York University, and I'm currently a doctoral candidate at the University of Southern California. My area of interest has largely been around Black adolescents and issues that occur because of the lack of resources in urban communities. Thank you for having us again. I'm Kara. I'm from Queens, New York, a recent graduate of Hofstra Law with a Juris Doctorate, currently working as a small business and micro business consulting. Well, thank you all for the intros and for those listening, if it's if it's not apparent, Unique and I are classmates and I've been bugging her since the podcast started to, to hop on. So I'm glad she's joined us. I'm glad that Jarrell and Kira have been able to join also. So you all know I bring a public health perspective to much of the work. And I wanna say within the past three or four years, gun violence has really been acknowledged as a public health crisis. Can you kind of paint the picture for us of how that's how you see that played out in your communities? As we know, gun violence is one of the 
um, the leading causes of premature deaths in the United States. Over 100 people are affected each day. In urban communities, um, guns are often passed down. The average cost of a street gun can be anywhere between $50 to $125. Um, and that's some of the um, small nuances of um, purchasing a gun in urban communities. So when we think about how we've seen it, or when I think about how I've seen gun violence play out in my community, I think, yes, it's a health crisis and we can work to solve it or at least decrease the numbers, but the lack of resources in our communities has been a large reason why gun violence has played out. When we look at the healthcare system, the mental health and substance use programs in our community. Um, when we look at the foster care system, the prison and school pipeline, um, expulsion and suspension, and the lack of financial resources in our community, that leaves our youth vulnerable. And I think that largely contributes to why gun violence has played out in my community and how I've seen it. Just to add on what Nick said, I think there you know, the theory of how communities uh, are impacted by gun violence is one perspective. I think that what actually what people experience on the ground level uh, directly impact the communities, I think is really different from the theories that you see. But I think that what was not seen on the ground level for these directly impacted community is the need for behavioral based interventions, mental health services, and also the supportive resources that communities need to thrive, especially under these times of, of stress. I think my particular focus is more so on urban street violence. Um, and what the public and most people often refer to as quote unquote gangs. Um, but the reality of this is that these are young black and Hispanic boys and mostly young adults who are associated with these types of street organizations who, who often coming from dysfunctional or broken homes who are kind of pushed into this, this street life. But I think that the problem here is not just the numbers, but it's mostly the city's response. So the police department, the district attorney's office and all the law enforcement agencies tasked with addressing this issue, their only response has been to arrest and prosecute. In 2014, there was 103 people from Grant Manhattanville Housing Developments, aka projects, were arrested in a, a, a number of counts, including gang conspiracy, weapons possession, and murder. Do that just two, two years later, um, 120 residents of the Bronx from Eastchester Gardens housing projects were arrested and charged in a federal rocketeering um, case. And then in between the years 2018 up to 2020, there were six gang indictments in Brooklyn that resulted in 138 arrests, uh, most of whom were teenagers and young adults. So if you just look at the, the data and the police responses around violence, they seem to only have one way to address it, which is to um, respond with punitive measures. And that studies to show arresting and prosecuting people is not a way to combat gun violence. Similarly, homicide and shooting spiked in New York City's most disadvantaged neighborhoods, with 95% of homicide victims being of black and brown color. Brooklyn itself has seen 60, 69 additional homicides and 363 more shootings than it had at the same point last year in 2019. With the respective increase of 69.7% and 100 127%. Just three of the borough's 23 precincts, the 73rd, the 75th, and the 77th, accounted for more than half of Brooklyn's additional homicides and 40% of its additional shootings in 2020, largely due to disparities in public safety and throughout the entire city. Just 10 of New York's 77 precincts, home to less than 13% of the city's population, saw 34% of last year's homicides. So personally, I have seen 
those that look like me perpetrate gun violence and become victims of gun violence. So let's take a step back, right? You know, what led you to be engaged in this work? What, what brought you to this type of advocacy? It's real personal for me. Like for me, I'm formally gang involved myself, James. I'm not sure if you know my story, but I was indicted in 2012 in a 41 count gang conspiracy with nine of my friends that I grew up with. We were all teenagers. None of us had, you know, a previous felony offense, um, but we were labeled in the media as these quote unquote violent perpetrators who deserve to have the book thrown at them, meaning that we would deserve to spend a number of years in prison. Uh, so for me, this is an uh, issue that's dear to the heart. Um, I, I carry my advocacy efforts around gun violence um, in the way that I think that it should be, it's, uh, a, I guess, a, uh, approached. I think that the least that you should do is focus on incarceration or punitive measures. For me, I think the leadership opportunities is the best form of uh, intervention that can be uh, given to someone who's gang involved, who's more likely to commit violent offenses using a firearm. Uh, but I, just to give you some context, like how I got to where I am today, like I was a part of a pilot program at Inside Criminal Justice. Um, and that program was featured in Queensboro Correctional Facility. And Queensboro's unique prison in New York State is one of the only reentry facilities Prosecutors from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office entered the state prison to work with their incarcerated men over a semester-long period for us to work with them to develop policy recommendations. So in sum, the, the Manhattan DA's office wanted us as incarcerated men to help them come up with criminal justice reform policies while we were still incarcerated. It was a phenomenal program, and that's kind of was my gateway to Columbia University, um, who, who helped co-author the course. Uh, but I left the course you know, with, with two things in mind, like why are we waiting for young people or people in general to have the mark of a felony conviction before we give them a part of a meaningful opportunity to be a part of change? And two, why are we doing this um, for people who more than likely have had numerous in, uh, interactions with the criminal justice system, uh, which is the case for most of the people who are incarcerated at Queensboro. This wasn't their first or second time being incarcerated. So uh, with those uh, questions or ideas in mind, I came home and founded the Justice Ambassadors Youth Council, building off of the same principles and program structure of inside criminal justice. The only difference was we catered it for young people between the ages of 16 and 24, which is the demographic more than likely to commit the most serious and violent offenses. Uh, but the way that we structured the program is that we give young people an eight week per period of time to work with city agency representatives to develop jointly authored policy recommendations. And at the conclusion of that, their time together, they present these policies to the heads of those city agencies. There are also incentives built in to keep the young people engaged. Uh, but I think the overall thing that we, we uh, take pride in is the curriculum. The curriculum is geared towards introducing young people to critical life skills like conflict resolution, skills building, and also behavior modification. But I think that you know, if we can have more programs that incentivize people to transform their own lives without incarceration or without the threat of law enforcement or prosecution, I think that that's a way for us to um, hopefully provide effective and healthy interventions. But I'll pass it to Kira. For me, it was actually seeing a friend of mine commit an act of gun violence and being sentenced to life in jail at the age of 16. This was this wasn't uncommon, but it was shocking because this was somebody that I knew and loved. I wanted to know what exactly went wrong and how could I prevent this from happening to the lives of others? That's how I became engaged in this work. I really wanna help others from falling 
victim to gun violence and from falling victim to perpetrating gun violence? So what led me to getting to the, into this work specifically around gun violence um, was my own personal experiences. Um, growing up in New York is a really, really fun place to grow up, grow up because typically we like to hang outside on our block. So like at a certain time, everyone comes outside, um, especially on this summer, the ice cream man comes through. It just was an experience growing up in New York. Um, so one day when I was about 12 years old, it was a summer day, we were outside playing with my friends and um, I was outside playing with my friends and um, we saw someone who lived on our block get shot and killed in front of us. Um, and to this day, like the sounds of the bullets haunt me, like I can, when I hear loud noises, I often jump from hearing loud noises. Um, and that's my first leading experience into getting into work around gun violence. So then when I think about my more, more recent one, I was walking into school, I mean, walking into um, my job at the time. I was a social worker um, in Brownsville, New York. And um, I saw someone get shot in the head outside my job. And when I told my supervisor about it, she asked me, have I ever saw someone get shot before? And she wasn't really empathetic. Um, and that's when I started to focus more on the issue. Um, of gun violence and the healthcare crises because it was so, to this day, it still bothers me how she just normalized gun violence and her reaction was, um, you've never seen anyone get shot before because it's normalized to see people get harmed or cause harm in front of them in certain communities. And I just wanna know why and, and how can I support? Sorry. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I think. I think that's a great question, right? So when you say why, what factors are playing a role really when it comes to perpetuating gun violence? In my opinion, it will be systemic poverty such as food and housing insecurity and lack of access to resources. For instance, social service has so many unnecessary hurdles barring access to life-sustaining resources such as food stamps, also known as SNAP, and or cash assistance and Medicaid. When families are finally eligible for food assistance, the average benefit is a measly $1.64 per person per meal. Have you ever tried to eat within those confines? Hungry children have a harder time learning. The education system is biased and inadequate in communities of color. Schools in black communities receive dramatically lower funding, resulting in lower quality education, learning materials, and aids, thus leading to an inferior education. Schools and communities with 90% or more students of color receive $733 per student less than schools with 90% or more student, white students. This further fuels the cycle of undereducation, which leads to underemployment, which leads to poverty, which leads to a greater risk for perpetrating gun violence or becoming a victim of gun violence. So we, we're at the why and, I, and the social worker and me just cannot exist if I didn't get to the why of everything. I just need to know the why. Um, and when I look at the issue of gun violence and I look at the whys and working in this community, um, I wanna start with the lack of opportunity in urban communities like youth employment, um, young adult employment, between the ages of 16 to 24, what resources are we providing um, youth when they exit school and they don't have, if they exit school, if they complete school um, and they don't go to college, what opportunities are we providing? Free after school programs, 
in recreational recreational centers in all communities, and that will provide um, time, like in activities for our youth um, in their leisure, unresolved mental health symptoms and diagnoses, and substance use in communities, which we know triggers different things in the brain and the body, which causes us to act in certain ways. And we know in adolescence um, that the amygdala is still developing. So it's important that we do provide adequate support um, for persons in our community. And when I look at the failing school systems, how we see our children as temporary, and we often suspend our children, expel our children, put them in alternative schools, and that leaves nothing but time. And if you're in communities where you're under resources and there's no um, opportunities, there's no jobs, and you're kicked out of school, it leaves you more vulnerable to other activities that couldn't be considered as crimes um, in order to meet those needs. And I look at the social service system, how we don't provide um, that much resources to families. So the expectation that a family of two can eat off of $300 in food stamps in one month and they won't have other needs. And then um, when they receive $300 a month in um, funds and they don't have other needs, we're not taking up um, needs and considerations of food insecurities. So those are some of the things that come to mind when I think about why, the why, like the lack of resources, the lack of access, the lack of equitable support for you. So as I think about your question, James, like what factors play in the gun violence? Like, I don't want to assume that you have a naive or ignorant audience. I want to assume that these are educated folks who are somewhat engaged in this issue already or, or aware of it to some extent. Uh, so much of what my, my colleagues, Unique and Kira, have already mentioned, people are aware of the school to prison pipeline. P people are aware of environmental circumstances that push people along this pipeline to prison or to these instances where they commit the worst mistake of their life. So I don't want to reiterate so, to those points again, but I do want to highlight the, the fact of programs and services that are effective and are not as uh, widespread across the country in these most disadvantaged neighborhoods as they should be. I think that young people haven't had a, a chance to voice their opinions, to express their ideas, or to share their personal experiences in front of a, a population of people who hold power over them. I think that giving people the voice to advocate for the changes they wanna see in their community is most essential. I think that we don't have programs that uplift and empower people. And I think that that's it right there. Um, when you feel like you're, you're in an environment that you don't have no control over, then you're gonna do whatever you think you gotta do to survive. And whether that means robbing, shooting, or killing someone, if that's what you've been conditioned to believe is the what, what you have to do to survive, then you'll do it. Um, it's really, we have to get people to a point where they realize they have something to lose. And at this point in time, the way that conditions in these communities reflect, people don't have much to lose. Um, and it's not a hope for a better future for them. So we, we just gotta be cautious when we talking about these services and stuff that's, that's um, on a general level. But my personal interest is, helping to change the, the philosophy that young people develop when they come from these um, disadvantaged communities and how can we disrupt the thinking to help people to make these smarter decisions and how can I instill in you the values that I help you to think about your life differently and, and others around you. Girl, I know you're, you're really getting at the solutions, right? And I, I really wanna get there. And I got one more question um, before we, we head in that direction. And this is just something that's that's personal to me because it shapes narrative, right? And it shapes the discourse because when you open the newspaper and I don't see it as much as I, as I used to as maybe a teenager, but there's this idea of black on black crime, right? And 
to me, that's, that's mostly myth. And for me, it's a, a matter of asking, why is that harmful for our communities when things are framed in that way? Mm. Right, so, I mean, you're not supposed to answer a question with a question, <laughs> but I believe the question at hand is really like, do hurt people hurt people? Now we know this to be true, but if you take it a step further, like why does it seem like poverty, crime, substance abuse, and street violence seems to only be isolated in urban communities, as if it's a problem that only occurs in disadvantaged communities of color, but street violence and all of these other challenges that the public faces is prevalent not just in minority communities, but across all, all underserved and under-resourced communities across the world. It's not a problem just isolated to black and brown. Uh, but I think, you know, of like black on black crime is just really what the media's portrayal of um, citizens who are non-white or not, or, or I mean, excuse me, non-black student uh, citizens or people who are not coming from these challenging communities. Of course, it's easy for them to focus on black on black crime because that's what they see when they open the front page of the paper. That's what they see when they turn on channel seven news. Uh, so this is the image that's constantly being displayed before them. So they might turn a blind eye to what's happening down the street from their own neighborhoods because this is what's constantly being shown. And when you have a media um, image constantly being shown to you, then you, you indoctrinate people or the masses into believing that this is the only problem inside of this neighborhood. And that that's really not true. And I think that, you know, one of the problems that I see is that much of, I guess, advocates around this issue, Black people, we find ourselves only trying to have a, a conversation to dispel this myth on Black and Black crimes. But white people are never in their spaces to take the time to acknowledge white on white crime. So I don't, I don't think that we, we need to do it as well. And to speak to Jarrell's point, crime is due to proximity. So the myth black on black crime kind of teaches us to fear one another when it takes accountability off root causes of the problem. What causes crime? What causes crime within the black community? Not just black people harm other black people. We need to look at the root causes and we need to remain focused on the root causes and not not put the attention on the people and the problem. We need to really focus on how can we solve this problem? So this question happens to be my favorite question um, because I'm really big on language. I'm really big on how we frame things. Um, Jarrell said a question that I really, um, said a, a quote that I really love and it goes to framing and how framing can depict outcomes, right? So Jarrell said, hurt people hurt people. And I do work with um, like a non I do work nonprofit work with children who are exposed to violence and we use positive terms and we frame from a positive view. So our view is healed people, heal people. Healed people have a, the potential to heal an entire community because how we frame things. Um, when we look at white supremacy, white supremacy allows their ide ideologies to frame everything around black people being animalistic, criminal criminalistic um, and problematic. Once we understand that arguably all of their views are problematic, we will no longer be captive to terms such as Obamacare, the welfare queen, black on black crime, quote unquote, um, black men are criminals, the war on drugs, nor any of their other problematic names or slurs that they have used to depict us and switch the narrative. So let's, let's dig into the solutions, right? 
Um, and I'll ask the very novel question to start, and I know there, there's ways that we're going to evolve, but what can we do to prevent and reduce gun violence? And realizing I tend to think about things in different systems or different levels. So we can talk through individual, community, and institutional. Um, I love this question because I feel like one, it's one that we could bounce around, like maybe starting at micro, um, and then me, Jarell, and Kara could bounce around micro um, thoughts, um, James, um, and then we can go to macro level two because the needs and the solutions will be different across each system, and we all have a different area of expertise between micro, meso, and macro. From a micro standpoint, I would say we could increase access to education by providing support to those identified most at risk. We could also um, use violence alternatives and try to teach within those education systems, try to teach de-escalation um, techniques, promote you know, self-love and self-care among you know that highly sensitive demographic teach them how to handle their anger teach them how to better communicate with others all things that lead up to violence teach them how to handle those emotions and those feelings and those occurrences before you get to violence happening so i also would like to add to micro tool um naming um piggybacking off some of the things that karen named Peer-to-peer -peer mentorship is really good. Um, we know that a lot of times Black men and Black boys are taught that they're inferior in all of the systems that they enter. So the school system, the job force, social services, the shelter system, ACS, any system. And if they're taught they look inferior and they encounter um, conflict with someone that looks like them, they essentially think they're inferior too. So what's your value? What's your worth? If my worth is zero, potentially what's your worth? So I think really having peer-to-peer -peer mentorships and education and awareness courses um, throughout urban communities um, and housing enhancements, as we know, lead poisoning and lead in um, housing um, is a thing and a high rate for um, youth growing up in um, projects. So making sure that we do housing enhancements and um, allowing um, allowing youth to live in equitable housing. Um, another one is job opportunities, learning, um, learning about the communities and providing the communities with what they need, not just assuming that everyone needs 100 police on the corner, reallocating those funds and doing recreational centers, healthcare centers, upgrading schools. Um, internship programs, education and job training, gang awareness, as Jarrell spoke about gangs earlier, it's important to understand why do gangs exist and what do gangs need to, um, to live and be within the community and have their needs met. So really understanding the bounds, um, the bounds of gangs and how can communities mend and how can we support them and provide they would provide them what they need and even teaching like just de-escalating um, de um, contacts. Um, and the last one I would like to say is education and awareness. I always go back to that. Um, for me, like it's really collaboration across differences. And honestly, like I, when I you know, work with these different cohorts of young people, the goal is for them to do this sort of policy change at the end of it. But I think it's really the collaboration 
with these government agencies, most of whom have caused a negative experience in the lives of the young people sitting before them. Uh, so when you think about the administration of child services, the Department of Education, the police department, the district attorney's office, having representatives from those agencies sitting in, a, in an educational space with young people from these marginalized communities, it says something. It says something for both sides. It says something for the young people who are brave and courageous enough to step in that space and to speak up and to speak out against the injustices they've been experiencing. And it says a lot for these government officials to stand by and to listen, to observe and to work with these young people to develop a solution in the form of a policy proposal. Um, and the way that I try to carry this out um, I, I, I took the, the initiative to um, invite the prosecutor in my own case, the man who made this prison recommendations for me in the courtroom. I invited him to join the Justice Ambassadors. Um, and I did it not most, not because I wanted to um, really work with him, but it was also to see it as an opportunity that you can work across the differences that you have to come up with solutions. Um, and what we were able to do upon his participation in the program um, in our small we work to develop project restoration. Project restoration is will be considering to be an intervention for gang involved individuals who are under investigation pending a, a mass gang arrest. Uh, so what project restoration is aiming to do is to invite people who are under active investigation by the police department to participate in a 24 month program. And upon successful completion of the 24 month program, they won't be arrested and they won't be prosecuted for affiliational activities that have been identified during the course of that investigation. Uh, so I think that, you know, for me, I see that as an intervention that can hopefully address uh, gang violence and gun violence. Uh, but I think that what the real components of project restoration, the, the most meaningful part is that there's a social worker to do a pre-assessment and then there's a social worker to do a post-assessment upon completion. Um, and also we're um, incorporating the principles of restorative justice where we're um, having both sides of any rival feud uh, to bring, come together to speak uh, about some of the issues that they've been having and hopefully to reconcile their differences in a, a healthy way. Uh, but I guess the, the major component of the project restoration that the young people who have been at odds with each other in these feuding neighborhoods, they'll have the chance to work together on a policy proposal that's aimed towards addressing gun violence. So we're having young people not only rectify the differences that they have, but they'll work together to solve that, uh, to develop an initiative that will hopefully solve gun violence based on their own personal experiences as being close um, and proximate to this issue themselves. So I think that that's one way that I see um, that we can address uh, gun violence in New York City is really collaboration across differences. So getting really specific, right? What, what has been your roles in solving this problem? I know I've seen pictures where it looks like there's been some rallies, but could you describe some of the efforts that you all have been a part of? As you mentioned, um, um, I was fortunate enough to, to build a longstanding relationship with Unique and Kira, and I've been, I've been really blessed and fortunate because Unique and Kira, they kind of show up everywhere. Like whenever, you know, I, I ask them, like, you know, let's, let's, I bring an idea to them and I'm like, you know, what do y'all think about this? And they're like, well, let's do it. And, and, and having team members like that, where we can just really go out in any community in New York City and take on any issue that we may be passionate about. Uh, but yes, as you mentioned, um, back in 2020 in August, uh, we actually did convene a gun violence rally in the Southeast section of the Bronx. It's actually my old neighborhood where I was born and raised at and I actually perpetuated my own act of violence. Um, and we, we saw that this is one of the neighborhoods who um, were experiencing that spike in gun violence, even through COVID. Um, and we wanted to see what we can do to address it. So I invited some of my uh, old friends 
who, who still reside in the neighborhood, who um, some may be still actively involved in gang activities themselves. Um, I invited them to come participate in the rally. Um, and we invited some of the um, graduates of the Justice Ambassadors to attend and a whole bunch of community folks. Um, but I think that the most powerful part of the, the rally that we held was that we were able to um, give the, pass the microphone around to young people to share their ideas of, of how they believe gun violence should be addressed. Um, and, and, it, and they explained it as ha something that has, has to happen on two fronts um, before the, um, you can ask them to kind of cease fire and keep down the gun violence. There has to be an investment of resources in these communities. So they, every city official that attended that rally, they called on them to really um, do what they can in their executive authority to reinvest in these communities that haven't had programs and services afforded to them. Um, and I think that that was the highlight for me is just listening to their stories and listening um, and learning from them. Um, but really I was fortunate to just have that kind of space um, even exist with the help of Unique and Kira. Um, and they, they, they can kind of take you a little bit further on some other things that we worked on. Um, for myself, I've been advocating for more access to resources in that when someone in my community is having a problem with getting their food stamps or their Medicaid, I walk them through the process, give them little known tips about, you know, how to access the system, help them with their application. As Jarrell has said, we co-host, I co-hosted the gun violence rally with him. I also held a rally in Brooklyn for women victims of police brutality, and that was in May. And we spoke with um, some policyholders about what can be done with the NYPD and their influx in violence and how they handle members of the community. Also, I worked as a community mediator for teens within my Bedside community and help them de-escalate whatever problems they may have and give them alternatives to violence and gun violence. So like Jarrell said, uh, me, him and Kira have really worked together on a lot of pro different projects and I'm grateful to have worked with them. Um, Jarell and I have worked in, um, worked in Brownsville together and the way we've worked in Brownsville together is, and solved our role in solving the problem, Jarell brought justice ambas ambassadors to Brownsville and allowed youth in Brownsville to have more access to what does it mean to change, um, change policy and change laws and working with city officials. And he really, 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 um, we cultivated a space for youth to learn more about how can they be a part of the change. So when I, that was one of the earliest collaborations I've had and that's partnering with the youth, like really helping them get a, um, speak, um, speak and say what they need. What do you all, you all think that, um, can, what do you all think are laws that can really, really be in place and really change the trajectory of your lives? And when you hear what they needed, um, the youth all from different backgrounds were from the same community, some gang involved, some not. Their needs were so different, but they needed something that many adults, many people, in um, positions of power wouldn't name. So allowing youth to really, really just have a voice and not only advocating for them, but advocating with them and being an ally. Um, um, the main thing I've done is really educated myself in knowing that I'm not the expert. So every single time you enter a space with the youth, you have the opportunity to learn about what's the change that's necessary or how can you help with this pro problem um, and, and never assuming I know what, what's happening. So when I go into policy meetings, when I go into um, 
learning YouTube, when I see videos um, as a social worker, you'll see videos of your cli clients and viral rap videos that fall victim to the news of being harmed or whatever it is, Not never assuming, oh, my client could have done this or this youth did that, but really asking black men, like, what do you need? Are you okay? What's happening here? Um, not assuming like, oh, okay, so somebody robbed somebody and it happened because they are a bad person. No, but like what resources are needed? So really always entering the situation is how can I show up as an ally? Where can I jump in and create rallies and communities where there's high rates of gun violence? And we pass out toys, we pass out lunch, we pass out job opportunities. We have social workers there. We have city officials there where we're really allowing a space for the people in the community, the youth in the community that are affected by this pandemic to have a voice and to know that those resources are out there, those after-school programs are out there. Justice Ambassadors is a, pa a paid program in New York City so we know your time is is not free youth. Like we know they have needs. So here here are things we can do to like um to help you gain um information, but also financial gains to help you with your socioeconomic status. It may not be a lot of money, but we'll provide you with a free meal too. So just really being on the ground and where can I fit in the gaps? So what can I provide? What's needed? And how can I always be a resource to the community? And you brought up like one of my favorite things of, you know, working with someone, working for someone like those words matter because it helps to frame your approach. And I think it will also help to frame some of the obstacles that you face in the work. And so with that, what are some of the common barriers that you've encountered when it comes to advocating? I know one thing that comes to mind for me and correct me if I'm wrong would be mindset, right? Like people don't believe that they could see a change or see a difference. And also there's the, the slow pacing of policy. I mean, policy change, we want it in an instant, but there's this huge bureaucratic process that gets in the way. But what are some of the barriers that you all see from, from your perspectives? I've seen lack of access and follow, lack of access, meaning I'll help someone with their social service application, follow the rules, blow by blow and they still get denied. And we have no reason why we have no recourse. Now this family is without food, potentially without a roof over their head. And there's no one, there's no one answer. There's no one that's gonna be accountable. These, pe these people are kind of just, you know, lost by the wayside and it's hurtful. Those that are in charge of public policy, all it is is a finger pointing game. It's not me, it's them. It's not them, it's me. So now we're just further fueling the cycle and we're just, you know, going back to back and forth, back and forth with no real resolve. And these people, there are people whose lives are at stake. There are hungry families. There's some, there's a mom who needs to get her daughter into school so that she can work. All of these things. And there's no one to say, hey, I have the answer and I can fix this problem. So when I look at barriers, I look at it at on many different levels. Um, and as someone who has worked in community-based organizations, I believe they... Um, community-based organizations in part can be um, part of the problem in communities. So oftentimes commu um, community-based organizations start with good intent, good admission statements, and the funds that they receive start to change their delivery rules and their barriers. So while their intentions may be to help youth in one way, um, let's say it's with through behavioral um, health 
and then they receive certain levels of funding that may change how the behavioral health um, services show up. And then everyone in the community may not have access to mental health. It may be for a certain age range. So we're leaving gaps in services um, with CBOs and really providing funding that can support the work that's being done on the ground. When we look at governmental agencies and how they've been a part of the problem, um, when we look at the, the justice system in itself and how we arrest people, how we place them in cages and how we take away their humanity. Um, for me, it's how is that not a barrier? If someone is telling you they need something so an action may or may not have been made, I don't know how a cage is gonna help them. So even when we look at the justice system and we think, how can we revamp this system? If someone has robbed someone, they, we know they come from a low SES community. Um, they may live in poverty. They may not have, um, they may be housing insecure or they may currently be homeless. How do we provide them with support? So outside of putting them in a cage, what programs can we put in those communities? When I look at schools, um, you know, just throwing kids out of school, uh, what can we do for a child that may show up and their behavior may deviate from the other youth or the other children? What can we provide them outside of throwing them outside the youth, um, throwing them outside of school indefinitely or putting them in barrier putting them in alternative schools, which are that much more worse, um, especially here in New York City. What can the school system do to really, really look at the youth and see what do they need? What do they want? And how can we help them, especially in um, urban communities, not assuming that 40 hours a week and a week in a building is the easiest thing. And if I can't do that, then I get thrown out. And what does getting thrown out look like in certain communities? Um, I like to look at white supremacy and the buy-in into white supremacy as a barrier, the expectation that this is the healthcare crisis and you know what there's nothing there's minimal resources being done there's a strain on um, support to CBOs and people on the ground but we're funding and funding and funding police who police um, as we know are contributing to gun violence in these communities so how is white supremacy and how is white um, right, um, right privilege showing up in this community and all of the isms. And then when we look at policies, policies in place, um, we have mandatory minimums on carrying a gun in New York City. And most youth know that, most people know that in our community, there's mandatory minimums. And sometimes a mandatory minimum is less time, more time in jail than an actual manslaughter case. So what are our laws sending to youth? What are our laws sending to the community and how are they really supporting someone? Um, because what's the difference of seeing someone you know care about being harmed and then you feeling like you have to protect yourself and having that, having a gun or having something and then you're in a situation and then you use it, but you know, you know, what is the psyche between knowing I'll get more time if I use it versus if, if I don't, I'll get, if I don't use it versus what I do. So really, really honing in on laws and what messages are we sending and how are we protecting our youth and their black bodies and showing up for them in the way that we need to. Definitely agree with you, Unique. I think it's a it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Like you 
you know, some people feel like the problem is the people who perpetuate these acts of violence themselves. And some people feel like it's the agencies who don't provide the resources and support and, and intervention. So it's like you're torn in this tug of war battle, like which one should I pull towards? Should I, you know, go towards helping the people stop them from committing these acts or should I sort of work towards pushing these agencies to make those kind of investments? For me, you know, much of my work is is on the the pushing the institutions and the agencies. However, I think it's you know you you have no choice but to overlap in the work, um, especially when you're doing it hands on the ground. I think that for me, the biggest barrier of it all is the police department. I think the police department is an overfunded government agency um, that doesn't really do the principles that they say that they live up to, which may be public safety and all of these and. and I'm not gonna go into it, but the details of the police department structure and the history behind how the police force in this country has been developed from the black codes and black people being chased down and forced back into slavery. I think that, you know, when you think about the history of policing in America and you think about when these, these um, crises as we're dealing with the pandemic now and which government agencies that provide the supportive services um, don't get the funding can extended to them during these times of crisis and which government agencies continue to receive more funding even during the times of crisis. It's a reflection of how we view public safety and it's a reflection on how we view uh, our communities. Uh, so when you have uh, social services and administration of child services and the Department of Education having funding taken away from them, but more funding being put into the police department, you're making a statement to not only the people of the country, but to other countries who are watching. Um, you're showing that you have a, a stronger belief that the police is more important than educating young people. You're showing that the not only is the police department more important, the police department for the administration of child services who is providing social work intervention to help the young people heal from the trauma that they've endured. Uh, so that those kind of statements that you make in policy laws, uh, they have direct implications on the lives of people who are impacted by these challenges. And I think that, you know, we don't need to continue to march to say defund the police department. Police department needs to take actions to say that we want to invest our own resources inside the community. If they were to um, take that brave stance, then that can be their first step towards rebuilding the severed ties with some of these communities that have faced particular challenges with the police department. However, it takes for a courageous leader from the inside to make that step or push from the inside to have them even step out on that limb. Uh, but again, like we don't, we shouldn't have to organize to say defund the police department and reinvest in communities. The police department who's so-called wants to uphold public safety should want to take that stance on their own. I think the best podcast episodes have a call to action, right? You know, it's not just a matter of people listening and going on about their day. So I, I want to ask each of you, what could others be doing to disrupt this problem? And just to give you some background, I think a majority of my listeners are actually in the California area. So Michigan is where I'm at. Definitely got family and a lot of people here, but I've got a huge base in California, which, you know, when we think about um, gun violence, definitely thinking about LA, think about the, the Oakland Compton area. Like there's probably things that people who are listening could also benefit from. So what do you all think, you know, as people are listening, they should start thinking about or doing as their call to action? So 
This is my favorite question. I know I say every question is my favorite question, but this is really, really my favorite question. I don't like to provide a problem um, or provide information without an ask. So I like to offer and I'd like to have an ask for everything that I do. So we, um, I offered information today. We all offered information. Um, so it's like if you ride the train in New York City, or you ever rode the bus, it's this um, saying: "If you see something, say something." So a part of my ask is: if you see something, say something. If you want to disrupt this problem, it starts with you. Um, research it. What is gun violence? Um, you anything you heard us say in this podcast just look into it a little bit more and when you look at communities that have high levels of gun violence how can you jump in how can you change the lives of youth how can you change the lives of lives of those affected by gun violence what's my expertise because we all have an offering and what will my offering look like if I work at a hair salon maybe bringing a young girl in from the community who you know um, can be affected by these crises and teaching her a skill um, if you are into social work a mentorship program a micro level social worker internship program there as well creating programs like if you cook a cook a teach cookback providing free meals in the community there's always room for us to do something so if you see something see a gap in the problem just jump in you don't have to be perfect you don't everybody has a value in this fight but in order to win this battle you have to fight No, thank you for that, Unique. Um, I just want to be quite frank and honest. Like this work really isn't for everybody. Um, I won't tell people, <laughs> I won't sell you hope. I won't sell you a dream. Um, some people won't last in the works. Uh, and I think it's, it's a shame. Um, and I, I like to be truthful in all of my responses. Uh, but I, I want to be honest that this is not a, a nine to five kind of gig. This is not something you you stop doing. This is a mission that if you choose to take on, it's something that doesn't stop, but it actually evolves over time and your passion and interest for it will evolve and change over time. Uh, so you might start out on front lines trying to do what you can to help get people on the front end of violence, but then you might change more so to the advocacy side of it. So the mission just to evolve a change over time. But what I will say is your commitment to it has to remain the same. And I would encourage anyone who's looking to get involved in this kind of work to just look at your life, assess your life before you dive into this work. Um, if you have children, consider that. If you are a full-time student, if you are a full-time employee, consider those things that might get in the way because you will feel like butter being spread to every corner of the bread. Uh, so I think that you, you consider how much capacity you have to invest in it, uh, how much you're willing to go, and understand that this is somebody's life that, that is needs that needed an intervention that you're um, going to be a part of working towards. So if this is not something that you want to commit an extensive amount of your life to or your life to as a whole, um, just think about that. But I think for me, like just to answer the question more specifically, um, besides volunteering with existing organizations or people already committed to this issue, I think another thing that can be done is um, using the academic institutions um, to develop uh, participatory acts and research projects where you work with the people who are directly impacted by gun violence to help them come up with studies that uh, will produce solutions to it. I think another another thing is to um, work with community organizations 
to develop new initiatives that address it. Um, and if you aren't comfortable being that hands-on with it, I think that you can simply use social media and the tools of the technology era that are at your disposal. You can lead a social media campaign that spreads awareness, um, offers services to people or to your users or your friends or whoever's following your, your messages or posts or content on these social media platforms. Uh, but that's just some of what I think can be done. Just get out there and do. I'm a fan of using our respective gifts and knowledge to fill the gaps. For me personally, I own a small business. I hire members of my community to hand out flyers and in any capacity that I can. I also challenge shop owners and store owners within my community to give back to the community. I do clothing, I do clothing and food drives and I press them. Hi, you've been in this community for 15 years. You know, the members of the community support you and keep your store running. I would like a donation. And, you know, I put pressure on them to give back to the community. Also, get to know the members of your community. We live in a time of social media, so we're not too social in real life, but get to know the members of your community and see how you can be uh, resource for them and they can be a resource for you. Once we dispel the myth that we should be afraid of one another and we really just get out there and get to know one another and pitch in wherever we can. I do clothing drives, I do food drives, I mentor you know, young girls within my community. They come to me, if there's a beef, I try to get in the middle of it and deescalate within my capacity. I know this is not for everybody, but if you can, you should. I don't disagree. I'm glad that you all framed it in a way that it, it doesn't, you know, people don't feel like they can just jump into it, right? There's there's a certain mindset that comes with it first. And also the long-term commitment, knowing that it is it is an uphill challenge. And I think that's something that I wish um, higher education curriculums would address, right? You know, we train people to go out and just like take on the world without really selling them like, you know, you're going to be set back. You're going to be disappointed. And there's like soft skills that are missing there too with being able to handle that that information. I wish I could, you know, pick your brains longer, but I, I try to commit to like an hour, hour and a half. But if people want to follow up with you all, how do they keep up with you, with your work, find out when maybe the next rally is, if they could support in some way? You know, is there a social media where they can follow you? Citizens Against Capitalism is our collective social media. Um, my name is unique like the word. Um, C Starks like Iron Man are the basketball players on all platforms of social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can find me, LinkedIn, LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. Um, you can find me at Unique C Starks. Well, um, my email is uh, jd3516 at columbia.edu. Um, other than that, folks can visit the Center for Justice website, which is centerforjustice.columbia.edu uh, to see any ongoing projects, initiatives, or services available in the New York City area or what uh, maybe national issues we might be focusing on. And I can be reached on LinkedIn. My name is Kara Bolden. And um, my Instagram is also Kara to underscores B-E-E. -E. It just dawned on me, Unique, that you used John Starks as your reference for your last <laughs> I, I can't let that slide as a Detroiter. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
I had to let y'all know he's from the Knicks, right? I learned that growing up in Iron Man. Oh, and another one is Game of Thrones, but I, but yeah, that's a good one. I've never gotten into Game of Thrones, but that's for another day. It was so good. It's, <laughs> I just don't know how to get started. I'm terrible with new shows. Preferably when you have nothing but time, because it it just consumes <laughs> you and it's long. Yeah. How many seasons was it? Six. Yeah. That's how long you gotta catch up. Catch up. No, I'm good. <laughs> no, I'll probably start <laughs> while I'm playing. Put it on the background and then end up watching it. So first of all, thank you all. Definitely appreciate the the message, but also just appreciate the work that you all are doing. It's it's necessary, and I, I hope that it continues to scale and broaden, right? Because New York is one example. I'm sure Detroit is another example. Flint is an example. All these urban areas who have been riddled by poverty, by a lack of access, by food insecurity, like all the things, all the things that are oppressing us. I, I'm hoping that there are folks like you in those other places who are having similar conversations and continue to just move the needle when it comes to addressing inequities in their community. So thank you all for, for being a part of that movement. And thank you for having us. Definitely, thank you, James. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for having us. And, and if you're not doing the work and you're interested in doing the work, all three of us are open for a conversation. So DM, message us, email us, um, whatever. And let's start the conversation. Let's create, um, this doesn't need to happen in the silos. A lot of our communities are interconnected and let's just connect it and do the work together. Yes, I agree. And I would like to just thank again, Dr. Unique Starks, Jarrell Daniels and Kara Bolden for hopping on the podcast. When we start thinking about gun reform broadly, I think it strips away a lot of the narrative that is necessary for community-based solutions. And so it's really exciting to hear some of the ways that they've organized their community, engaging stakeholders and getting lived experience from individuals who have been involved with the justice system to really shape a conversation around why this is necessary. And I see this happening so successfully in many places when it takes on that approach. You know, it's not just someone who's identified as an as an expert who has credentials, who has positional authority, is actually using individuals who have to navigate the systems in order to seek out the solutions. And that that's the way that we should do the work that we do. As always, you can follow us on social media. Shout out to the Instagram family that's following us at Equity Matters Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter. That's at Equity Matters PC, a growing community there. I really need to get more engaged in that space. Holler at me if you're on there. Send me an ad or something. Just let me know that you listened to the episode. We are officially wrapping up the month of April. Got a lot of exciting content coming in May. Just you wait on it. And in the meantime, never forget that equity matters. Mm -hmm.